Good news, you're here just in time. Here's another Laneway Talks. Today on Laneway Talks, we're talking to Roger Pike from Daniel, one of Laneway artists uh, who we've had on the label from virtually the beginning. And um, we uh, we consider came with a high calibre of musicianship and we feel sit within that Steely Dan kind of um, musical genre. Morning, Roger, how are you? Uh, good morning, Ben. I'm very well, and uh, it's a beautiful day in Sydney, a bit cool, and I just got back from a nice warm swim in the ocean for this morning. Oh, well, that sounds absolutely shivering. Well, yeah, the way we start our interviews, Roger, is we do we start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in uh, Newcastle. Um, I was born in Walls End, which is the western suburb of uh, Newcastle. And um, like a lot of people in Newcastle, uh, my dad worked in the steel business. Uh, he was a metallurgist, and uh, you know he worked with uh, all my all of my parents seemed to be involved somehow in that industry or coal or whatever. And uh, one of his work colleagues, uh, who was then became like a family friend, I became friends with his son, uh, the son of another metallurgist, yeah. and uh, he introduced me to bands. Yeah. All right, and so I grew up in. Sorry, I also moved to the Lake Macquarie area and basically the Swan City, Belmont, uh, Bucksmith. We spent okay. my teen years and and the rest of my time in Newcastle. I was living uh, out of Blacksmith um, with my family and parents. That is, and uh, that was that was fantastic for the surf and a great great pub called Mawson figured in that. Uh, in that story because uh, the local, we were the local band and we started a, a whole gig with a couple of other local bands. And well, let's not let's not go too far ahead. Let's pull okay, it, not too far. Yeah, let's pull it back a bit and say, so, you know, in your school years, when did you actually become musical or was it after your school years? Let's start there. Uh, yeah, unfortunately in our generation, a lot of music and arts were in the, uh, in the curriculum. Um, at primary school, yeah, there was probably zero. I'm just trying to think. Other yeah. than uh, and at high school, we used to listen to music. You know, in I think they had a music class and, and they play. I mean, what uh, were, what were you know. in? What were you into there for as a teenager at school? What music uh, were you uh, listening to? Well, yeah, it was your favourite. School, not much. I was going to give an example. At school, they would play um, uh, the bolero. Yeah. Revelle Bolero. Yeah. While at home, I was well. Later on, at least, I was listening to Bex Bolero because yeah. you know I was really into uh, the, the early rock music. My teen years, uh, early teen. When you uh, say early rock music, what what, what are you talking in oh, late si- late sixties? No, early sixties surf, surf guitar music, which is what I sort of have regressed to now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I always loved that. that um, Instrumental music and guitars, guitars and whatever, and and then the Beatles sort of come on. I was yeah. only twelve when the Beatles sort of came along. Yeah. So therefore, at school, you know, it wasn't really where you built up this uh, a sort of camaraderie no. with other people re music or playing musics as such. No, not at my high school. No. Hey, were I, you uh, playing guitar at that stage? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I was the particular banjo for my 10th birthday yeah and my father had found this old banjo that he was going to guys in the workshop 
steel with you after stuff and put the skin on it and do mm. all this, you know. And uh, he came when the, my birthday came around, my tenth birthday came around. You know, there was a, a bigger cardboard box with uh, with a brand new guitar in acoustic guitar, obviously, and yeah. uh, and a book that said "Learn Guitar in Five Minutes." Oh, really? So that's that's from the back of the com- comics, was it? The back of the comic book. Remember, you used to get the <laughs> become a scientist in ten easy steps. Yeah, well, um, apparently I was going to be an accomplished guitarist at the age of ten years and five minutes. Yeah, there you go. I got you. So, so therefore, from that age, that's where you start playing. You know, guitar. I did, yeah. And, yeah. And, and and getting into it. So therefore, nothing's really happened around school. So you get out of school. Do you go to university? I did go to university. I'm an architect, so right. I studied architecture okay. at Newcastle University. Okay. So and uh, is it during that and period? That's when the band, that's when the band sort of all started. And you know, even the architects had their. We had our own band at the uni. You know, that was a sort of a bit of an amateurish thing. But at the same time, I had a, a as I said, a family friend who is my age who um, uh, invited me to play with his band that included Jim Neal, uh, the other in um, Daniel, the other mainstay of Daniel is Jim Neal. Yeah. And so... Well, if, well, if you go back, I'll just, just cut in there, if you go back to a lot of the bands around the Daniel era, uh, era and let's call that... 70 to 80, okay, yeah. when you're really formulating your genre, you feel yeah. who you are. And a lot of bands formed out of the university days. There is no, no doubt every time I talk to someone, yeah, it all happened yeah. at uni. That's where that creative spirit came out and there was so much more creativity. I personally don't think that happens as much today. It's a very impersonal uh, yeah. place to be. I mean, when we – I'm up with you in age bracket. When we were at university – I mean, every Friday, because there was the very strong union membership going on uh, and the student bodies, we had music on in our halls every Friday free of charge. Now, they would be your mainstay bands. I mean, they they would be your big bands would be in there. And, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it fostered all that creativity and... Um, whether it be the flower power and then later, you know, the blues and whatever it will be. But you you got that sense that you had to be creative and it definitely doesn't exist now, but that's because the whole system, um, you know, has totally... It hasn't become insular. Yeah. It's, it's moved out and they don't yeah, actually yeah. congregate around uni. So we had this really lucky period, I think, within that era, that we were able to congregate with people uh, of similar interests and whether it be music or other things and, and you know, and cultivate that. And that's how a lot of the bands, our bands, when I talk to them, have formed. And obviously that's how you guys met, yeah? Uh, we didn't meet, no, the, the band that, that preceded uh, Daniel yeah. was, um, which did have Tim Neal and it had mentioned, uh, that was Daniel and none of those guys were at university, no. um, uh, but I was. And yes, we used to play at the union dues uh, on Saturday night. We would be sometimes, uh, or even half the time, we'd be the support band to a big band from Sydney. And but I tell you, in Newcastle, and it, it was the same through the eighties and nineties. Although I didn't live there then, um, yeah. I lived there in the seventies. Always. Lots of gigs in Newcastle. It was always a great place for gigs, and 
even in the Melbourne days when we were playing down in Melbourne, we would travel up the coast, play maybe a gig, or up the coast, up the Hume, that yeah. is, play somewhere, maybe in Canberra or Wagga or somewhere like that. Yeah, Albury. Invariably, invariably, there'd be one gig in Sydney, we'd probably get cancelled, but we'd play up in Newcastle where we had a bigger, big following. We were a few yeah. nights up there, and that was it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we, we, we got the university days and whatever, and that's precursor to Daniel. So therefore, how does Daniel come about? Um, well, the band before it was called Delta. Yeah. And uh, that was in that 72, 73, and uh, it all folded. I took a sort of a gig doing, I was still studying, obviously, took yeah. a gig um, playing in, a, in another venue in Newcastle. It became... Part of the circuit later on was the Ambassador Club. A lot of bands played that in the 80s. And I became, I was like in one of the resident bands. They're the early band, the resident bands, or the early bands, resident yeah. bands. Um, and, and what had happened is the original guys, Jim had formed a band with a couple of other people and called it Daniel. Right. And so I ended up, they ended up coming in and doing a residency there as well. So I joined them. So it was almost the original band back together, but it wasn't. It was a couple of the original players yeah. from the previous band, yeah. So that's when Daniel started in that 1974. In, so, yeah, in the late 75 years. So did you have a, did Daniel have a following, or as a resident band, uh, it had a, uh, a venue yeah, that yeah. just had people rocking in? Yeah, no, the bands played there. Well, well no, people didn't mind hearing the same band every every week or every night. Yeah. But then they the venue, the venue itself and also our band started playing that. And we we used to play also a regular gig that became that became a real classic was the uh, the, the Morton Hotel in Caves Beach and the famous Swansea Workers Club. That was another good gig. There were lots of gigs that then be, um, in the late seventies became Part of the circuit for all the yeah. big Australian bands. So, well, let's let's um, let's put, yeah. let's strip it back a bit to what Daniel was and and what genre uh, were you playing then, and what were um, you guys listening to? What was your flavour? Yeah, well, in 70, 72, well, seventy three, seventy four, when the, the, the precursor, I say, the mm. band, the precursor to that, we used to play uh, all sorts of uh, music. From we used to play the, the Pink Floyd. It was all covered, mm. um, and we used to do a lot of uh, when, when Daniel started. We yeah. used to do a lot of soul stuff from that period. Yeah. Stevie Wonder and Donny Hathaway, mm. uh, Marvin Bay, all that that sort of stuff, which uh, Jim Neal was very good at with the vocals and everything. And yeah. uh, and in fact, when I, if I think back when we first played in the band called Delta, yeah. it was all Creedence Clearwater and Van Morrison. Well, who Morrison essentially stuff. the biggest band in the world in 1970, Creedence. Sorry? I said uh, essentially only a couple oh, of years were. prior, yeah. Creedence were the yeah. biggest band in the world. So it was, when they, yeah. yeah, this was early, yeah, earlier in London. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so that that formed the, the basis of it. And uh, I wasn't, uh, I didn't really take a big part in the lead vocals until I branched out on my own before, just before Daniel yeah. um, got got together, and then uh, and then started to be part of the, the vocal setup with uh, Daniel. Then, so, yeah. so who who became the mainstay writers for Daniel? The writers. Of this, I was the main writer. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, if you yeah. were the main writer, what was yeah. what was um, what was the genre that you were thinking of? Because Daniel, yeah, yeah. you know, I well, mean, no, no. let me let me first 
start with for the audience to say, well, what what do I think Daniel are? Because I'm a punter like anybody else. And and I knew Daniel from a long, long time ago. I didn't discover you guys later. I'd, uh, I, I discovered the vinyl uh, a long time ago and had a listen and thought, wow, it it's an Australiana sound, but with that real American slick musicianship. And it was really kind of weird, uh, and I thought, should they be in Australia or should they be in America? And so that that's what I got across. And really yeah. well crafted songs. These were not. This was not a a pub rock band. It essentially, you were no, not. You weren't a pub rock yeah. band. No, that's right. So what do you? I mean, now you tell me what you think you were, and you know what you were trying to push out to your audience. Well, the Staley Dan thing was was very big, um, and uh, I was already playing Staley Dan material on my own in my yeah. own little band yeah. before form before I joined Daniel, and they were already playing some Staley Dan material. Yeah. And the other big influence. Uh, another American band was Little Feet. Yeah, um, yeah. we used to do a lot of this stuff, and we just loved the sort of the the, the R and B kind of background to what they did, the the beat, and uh, and just uh, uh, really crafted songs. And and obviously, Steely Dan had all the the, the jazz chops that yeah. that we kind of aspired to a little bit. But you know, we didn't play full on the floor, beat on the drums, so we couldn't you know call ourselves the a full-on rock band in that way, but no. um, we were just mixing it with all the bands of the seven, of the late, early and well, to late 70s. So um, well, yeah. how does the band start to develop from there where it becomes a real band of Daniel, and let's say you probably do some covers for a while and then you start pushing the covers out and you 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 know writing all your material and yeah. you're aspiring to be signed by a label, right? So w- where are we heading? Um, well... Just to qualify, we never got rid of covers. We would always do covers um, through to the, uh, the when we released our album. You know, we had a, a play of um, original material, but we would always do uh, at, a, at a full gig, not not just a showcase gig or something. We would do uh, a lot of covers. Yeah. And so, in recent years, when we had a reunion of the band as of such, or sort of. Reunion. Yeah. At least Jim and I being involved, um, and Paul Trimble was involved. I can remember because I saw the I saw the set list that we played. And we played a half a dozen songs, and three were originals from the uh, album, and um, and the other three where there was just a show our influence was one Stevie Dan, one Little Feet, and one Stevie Wonder. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. so how do you head towards trying to get a record deal? Uh, we got the record deal with Image Records. Yeah. and Who had Kevin Borich at the time, if I remember correctly? No, we were never did. No, I, I think um, um, Mike Rudd, Coach Ariel, mm-hmm. or Ariel, was on Image. Right. And that and Mike was sort of our mentor. He became our mentor. Then he came when Ariel folded. I think that was the last sort of band before he while we were still going at least, um, that, and he took out sort of management and representing us and, and producing, we produced this single. Yeah. We single deal, like whatever deal we got, I can't yeah. remember. We did a deal and released a song called Are You Listening? Yeah. And it got a fair amount of airplay in places, in the regional Australia, 
and, and obviously Newcastle, where we're from, and and I think Image decided to give us the chance to do an album. And in the meantime, I think they they were a bit worried that the album wasn't going to go anywhere. I remember, and then we got picked up by Yamaha. I don't know if you know the story. No. So Rose Music, Rose Music yes, Australia. I know Rose. Were, yeah, they they were looking for an unsigned band who they could get to promote what was their their new kind of pro instruments and I tell you that they like the great music company now in terms of musical instruments but yeah. back then they didn't really have much of a name and so they wanted us to show off their, their guitars which you know became pretty popular and, and sell for a lot of money now. But uh, and drums and the the electronic techno that uh, that was like a miniature grand piano, or miniature upright piano, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, that was um, a very, anyway. fa- very famous instrument, that piano. Yeah, yeah. So we, we had all of that gear um, and the PA, a whole thing, and we were kind of sponsored by, by Yamaha. And to that said, I think that's why we got onto the bill at the Night News concert. Right. For the Yamaha sponsorship. Yeah. Um, uh, we got onto the bill but, there. But, but, but were you signed yet uh, officially to do an album or the album had... Oh, been... yeah, no, we'd, we'd already released the album. Right. By, yep. uh, so, no, we were signed to do the album, but there was a bit of hesitation on image. And then when Yamaha came, they, they got behind it and that re- really helped. The, yeah. the sort of the, the energy of the whole uh, thing and, uh, and so we went and, and made the album it was nicely produced by Mike and also he used to have a couple of names escaped me but a guy who did some string elements that I worked with and we had um, guys doing brass parts and a few brass arrangements yeah. too well tell me tell me a little bit about Bon Voyage Australia what, what, what is that song about? Uh, that was the song that, because this was late in the piece, I think I, that's my song. I was getting a bit disillusioned with uh, trying to do it. Uh, I, I talked to other news days in Melbourne, you know, in other bands. I remember I was with mates with Bryn Mayer, you know, I used to talk about just getting... Uh, getting off and going off to the US and trying to find something there. I don't know. It's a bit sort of uh, cynical, I guess, the lyrics. But uh, um, well, another one I want to know yeah. about is "Do the White Man." What is that song yeah. about? Yeah, I think people hate that. It, it's like um, I'm not sure what the, the the correct term for that sort of thing is, but um, it's a def- it's a definite dig at the white man and the history of white man. Mm. Um, particularly, it mentioned Queensland, I think, in it, you know, mm-hmm. and and just the way that, particularly in Australia, the world, which is everywhere, the white uh, a white man get a lot further in uh, in the world than a black man, you know. Yeah, you have to be and, very uh, careful what you say today, don't you? Ah, uh, yeah, I don't think that song would be. I think that song is is it's quite clear that uh, if you listen to the, all the verses. Got to, you've got to hear the turnaround in the yeah. verse, you know, and and it's the turnaround. This is what it's really about, and it's uh, it's definitely uh, an anti-racist sort well, of. I suppose thing. it was written during the Joe Bajelka P- Peterson days. That's yeah? right. I think there's a reference in one of the verses to, to Big Joe. Um, and just the last one I want to ask you about is "Last Night in the City" because that's the title okay. of the album. Yeah, that's. Nail song, um, and I guess uh, we were, we were all uh, originally from, as you know, Newcastle. He grew up in uh, the Walls End area too. I thought, you know, uh, Sydney was always a 
sorry, uh, Melbourne was always a, a big smoke end. Yeah, and I guess we listen to lots of sort of records and lyrics about urban music and American urban music and whatever. And I think that's what grabbed his uh, his attention was just last night in the city was just yeah. there. And wrote a really nice song that was that uh, you know I I, I think that and uh, sad sad day are the two songs on that whole record that I'm I'm proud of you know yeah or, well what you know, so yeah. what so you you're out touring last night in the city and and promoting yep. it and what's happening are you you're not getting another album deal offered and are things falling apart uh, what's happening with Daniel. Yeah, I don't, I, can't, I don't know the length of time involved, but what we were struggling to make money, you know, getting our roadies thing to get, the end of the week, the roadies thing to get more money than we did, but, you know, yeah. we, were, we were enjoying it, and, and we did a lot of sort of uh, promotion for Yamaha. We would go to music stores and do little, you know, workshops or whatever, their gear. And we did a tour of Tasman. Well, we were uh, promoting the album. We'd go to Adelaide and all. And that was fantastic. We got great reception in, in lots of places outside the big cities. Yeah. In Melbourne, you know, in Adelaide. And uh, we'd go to Warrnambool. We'd go to Geelong. We'd go to Newcastle, obviously. As I mentioned, Wagga and, um, mm. and, and those places. But we're always, you know, great. Um, particularly the first sort of places where, I don't know, there's, there's a bit more... Um, you know, you go and play down at Lawn for yeah. a bit longer. It's just an amazing, and people knew us, you know, because we'd played before. So, were, were you were you headlining at that stage and filling the venues? Oh, we headlined. Yeah, we headlined at those places. Yeah. yeah, there was only really the the support gigs we did were all, you know, I, I don't know, called the fence. The Tree Gully Hotel, yeah. Bombay, yep. something, yeah. Bombay Rock, and whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we we also headlined once at um, <laughs> at the Eureka Hotel in Geelong, and yeah. uh, we were waiting. We were waiting to do our stand. Paul Trimble, the guy came up there to where we were all hanging out, and said, "You got to hear these guys who are playing before us, right?" Yeah. Then I was down, and, and uh, we come down just in time to hear Ian Moss doing Georgia, and it was Paul Trimble. <laughs> <laughs> And we didn't even know who they were, what they were. And, uh, well, look, I've seen a lot of that with ACDC too as a young lad. You know, I'd, I'd be out yeah. seeing um, whether it be Skyhawk or someone else and, you know, ACDC supporting them. Um, yeah. yeah, it's always the way. So tell me, you know, what we did, we, we then released Last Night in the City 2. So you obviously went back into the studio and you were recording. And was that under Image or was that on your own steam? No, that was... Uh, Image probably paid for the sessions. I never really thought about that. We wouldn't have had the money to do the sessions. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the 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 two it was never a, a released album. It was no. something that I, I put together yeah. from all of the takes. The, sorry, not the outtakes, but the, um, the the songs that we were working on, some of which were really good, and I unfortunately the the quality of them on those tapes uh, was never really up to speed, and uh, and in fact, out of all those tapes that we put together for Langway, yeah. um, the best one was the the best thing is really I tell people to listen to the um, 
the thing that I tagged as Last Night Live, which was yep. the, um, yep. the, the, the the songs we played at Palace Hotel, is it? Yeah, at, uh, uh, sorry, the Palace... Yeah, uh, the, the, the Palace Nightclub, yeah, the Palace Nightclub. Yeah. Yes, yeah. we used to know it. I mean, it, 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 it had an 1,800 capacity, so it was a big venue, right? Yeah, no, it was fantastic. And, and that was... That was the band. It was fairly well recorded, but it was the band at its height in terms of tightness and playability and whatever. So we we just really nailed the songs off the album, and then also did some newer ones, which were written with a guy called Jose McLaughlin, oh, yeah. who he was the keyboard player. Yeah. He joined us very late in the piece yeah. when we we finished the album. He didn't yeah. play on the album, but he ended up playing on all the gigs post then and and some and the recordings that we did. Um, in the studio at yeah, yeah, gotcha. So, so what happens then? Uh, the band obviously we just, it just yeah, we petting, pettering out, or was it a, a firm decision to go, look, we're going to stop? Yeah, I thought draw the broke the back. Yeah, we did it. We did a tour of Tasmania. Now, again, not a lot of people used to go down to Tasmania, but we went down because Yamaha wanted us to go there and play a few of the pubs and whatever and then go to the music stores in, I don't know, Launceston and in Hobart and whatever. So we did, uh, I can't think how long it was, but it was a bit of a tour. And even though they that we had their financial support to do it, it still ended up costing us a lot of money and we really just looked at it at the end and said, we're just not making any money out of this. And people were just getting a bit fed up. And What age so, bracket What age bracket are we talking? Uh, I, was, uh, I was 26. Yeah. Right. I turned 27 the following year because that's when um, uh, I hit off overseas and, and ended up living overseas for the next 10 years. So, you know, well, you, you know. I'd never been, I'd been at university, I'd been playing in bands, being married after you finish university, then I I didn't work as an architect. I worked in the band full time, you know, mm. and I just thought, well, now it's time to see the world. Uh, and I think you know it, it was a lot of really good, really good musical fun playing the band. So there wasn't any big sort of clashes of personality. Yeah, so much as we just couldn't, you know, weren't making a living. So Couple what did you guys have yeah. children? Yeah, no. what, yeah, what did what did the guys, did any of the guys go on to any other bands after that? Okay, well, uh, starting with Neil, he, um, because he, he was the man that wrote Last Night in the City, so he eventually moved straight back to uh, Newcastle, and um, other guys of the original four-piece band, that is, um, yeah. was Dave Stewart and Paul Trimble. Paul Trimble stayed on and was part of Loose Trousers, I think that was called. I don't know if you remember them. Was it and loose, well. loose Tram or Loose Trousers? Loose Trousers. Yeah, I do remember them, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, posters, and yeah. I was, the guy who was the mainstay of that, um, which Paul became very close with, was Richard Hauser, who oh, yeah. a lot of you don't know him. I didn't know him until, because mm-hmm. I wasn't in Melbourne at that time, I mean. Um, but um, he passed away a couple of years ago. And, uh, he, he was and, in a band called The Ritz. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, I do. Rem- yeah, I know him. Yeah. The, yeah, and then so he had a, he must have also had a band called Loose Trousers and he yeah. formed that with. Yeah, that was after and, The Ritz. The Ritz were prior, I think, and then Loose Trousers. Right. But anyway, um, yeah, Richard, and then, Richard passed away. And, and then Dave Stewart 
um, the drummer fairly quickly formed uh, or joined the the band Stop C and Mason. Yeah, fantastic and, uh, band, fantastic band. Yeah, and you know, and enjoyed that movie that Stockley C and Mason have made or made back then, which was uh, quite funny in a lot of parts, but it got some great live footage of the band playing and very lucky to have that and that band should have continued on there is no doubt about it yeah, yeah. well they uh when because uh, as you may know dave stewart passed away about yes. a month ago yes yeah yes. and yeah. and and uh i think it was sam c put a few things up including a youtube clip of them playing at um some venue and playing one of their songs i can't remember what the yeah the, the song was but uh, it was just, they sounded fantastic. Well, what about you? So, what, about, what about yourself? I mean, yeah. Well, the other so the other guy that was in um, uh, Stocky St. Mason was the bass player. Yeah. Um, a guy called Jeff Rosenberg. Yes, yes, Jeff, Jeff Rosenberg. Yeah. He came. He they were a bit like Daniel. We came down from Newcastle to make it big in the world of music in Melbourne, which was the only place to get to back then. Um, and he came from Canberra with a bass with a hot air band. And, since then, he lives in lives in Sydney since the late eighties, I think, and he's uh, he's been um, uh, living out in the Blue Mountains, you know, western Sydney. Right. Now. But I still keep in touch with him. I play a couple of gigs together as well. Yeah. Would so, did, well, yeah. did you go to any other bands after Daniel? Uh, no. After that, I went um, and uh, headed off to the United States just on a little trip that turned into me getting a job in the design business, getting a green card and staying there. Wow. And, um, that's a, that's a I truth. Used, and I used to, um, I used to play solo. I, I, Over in the um, States, yeah? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. I, yeah, and I, I used to I did a bit of it in, in Chicago. Chicago was the first place I went to because my girlfriend or now wife, is, uh, she worked for, she got a job with one of the consulates, so I just hung out. I wasn't supposed to work, but I got all sorts of job playing, and um, even though I wasn't allowed to work, I got hired as a paid busker yeah. for the city of Chicago one summer because they were hiring. They couldn't, busking was legal, so they said, well, it's not legal if, um, if we hire them, and yeah. they wanted to put people on the street playing right. music. That was the easiest way was just to pay them. So I hated busking, but um, I never did it really. But I took, I, I got the job with uh, a bunch of other people. It was fantastic because there were other people, um, you know, and we became a bit of a, there was a bit of a uh, camaraderie amongst it all, including, you know, Amongst the, the buskers, the, yeah. Yeah, well, I, sometimes <laughs> I'd hate where I was and I, I'd go around and, and join. You had a little sign and everything and I'd go and join them and, you know, there was a couple of the black guys who we just had, I'd never been to the south side of Chicago. This is in, in 1970 and 1980. Is that the, is um, that the black side, the south side? Yeah, well, it is, it is. Well, it is still, but it's all blended now. Yeah. But back in the other side, I even wrote a song called North Side, South Side. I was in Chicago because it was such a distinct difference. And so we went out to one of the nightclubs and music venues in the, on the south side and whatever. So fantastic um, and I wasn't there very long but then I went to San Francisco where I, I really started in a, a good uh, day job of uh, 
that involve design but in graduating. I mean, obviously, you could get, get to go to the Fillmore on any occasion, being in San Francisco. Uh, Fillmore wasn't a go then. Wasn't it? Was it? The Warfield, in downtown San Francisco, the Warfield was the, was the venue. Right. Um, venues in San Francisco. Uh, the Kabuki Theatre in Japantown, which I would have, I was really talking about recently. Um, I saw the Cure there one concert, and I saw Minute Work there on one concert. So you're yeah. in San Francisco now, working in the graphics industry, yeah? Uh, in the uh, design, design. Design. Okay. So you're yeah. over there working. How long do you stay over there working for? Uh, this was from 1983 till the end of '85. Right. And I also I, I put a band together. Yeah. And then joined another band. We were called Kiss the Bride. Now we have a lot of music that we recorded that time. The two guys, the keyboard player and the drummer, ran a little studio. And uh, so all we did for most of we didn't play live that much, but we would just record my songs. And, uh, and some of them were pretty good songs. Never, never great recordings. Right. Um, but also the two guys who uh, that I played with and yeah. still friends with formed a company called DigiDesign. After I left, yeah. did you design which invented uh, Pro Tools? And, uh, they, <laughs> oh, they, wow. they got they have a Grammy and an Oscar. So what are they? They're worth about two billion dollars each now, aren't they? Now I think they sold it for. I think they might have got a hundred million each. Oh, that's One right. Guy Sorry, got, I got it wrong. Not a billion. It was a hundred million. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Or between them, I don't know, but it was it was it was uh, pretty big. We, we're talking uh, early nineties is mm. when they sold to um to Avid, is it Avid yep. Systems? Avid Systems, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Yep. They sold to them. Uh, Peter, the drummer, who was really the brains behind the business uh, in terms of business wise, he he went on to front many other things on the board. He's he was part of uh, is it Line Seven, Line Six? What's it called? Line anyhow. Instruments, professional instrument stuff. He when when we met and we were playing in the band, he was a copywriter for um because that's what he studied. He studied writing, you know, um in English and stuff at university. Yeah. He was a copywriter for Dolby, writing oh, yeah. their manual. Oh, yeah, Dolby um, Systems. Yeah, now he's the chairman. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens at uh, mid eighties? You come back home, but you've got a green card, and having a green card, do you do you have that for life, or do you have it for a period yeah. of time? No, and I, I didn't come home either. I decided it was uh, time to uh, see a bit more of the world because basically I left 79 to go and build them. All I got to was, you know, the US. Yeah. And that was about it. Yeah. So I decided to come back to Australia, uh, see my parents, yeah. do it out for a few months and then go on to Europe and UK. And I ended up in London. I was able to work in London. So and this is with your wife, got, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And she... Uh, I got a job. I ended up working for the company that I worked for in San Francisco, yeah. sort of an international design company. Yeah. We had an office in London. So I went there and worked for them and stayed for a couple of years. I then did an interim thing because the guys I knew I met through one of the women I worked with and uh, they were a band called The Fat Lady Sing. So all from... Dublin, good. The guy is called Nick Kelly. He still makes music, good music. Uh, he's so I ended up playing guitar and doing backup vocals with with his band. So that's um, in that eighty-five to ninety period, yeah. That's not yet. That's right. Yeah. So what and happens uh, then at ninety? You're coming back to Australia. Uh, 
Yeah, I know. I came back eight, nine. We were back sitting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, gotcha. And that's where you've been ever since. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah well, I had a few, and another little thought, you know, that there's nothing musical involved. It was to do with uh, some architectural work. So tell, um, tell me what I what I like to um to ask is in in circumstances like this where you've had the album. Yes, we've put out the other two albums because you've found all the recordings. But you've essentially not put anything else out. Nobody would know who Roger Pike is because you, you've never put anything out. But when, you, when we talk over that period, you were quite consistent in playing for the next 10 years after that. Yeah, I think I, I, think I had a quieter time back here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, we, I, when I got back here, I yeah. contacted Glenn Mason, who I mentioned before. Yeah, I know um, Glenn very well. A, yeah, well, he was a, he was a colleague because... And a friend through um, uh, through Mike and Ariel, we were sort of mm-hmm. you know soulmates on the on the circuit. And when I got back to Sydney, I contacted him because he lived in Sydney then, as did Nigel Makara, the oh, drummer, yeah, yeah. as did Harvey Mason, the guitar player. Yeah, they were all playing in a band. I I don't think they had a name because I came up with a name later on. I think, but uh, we started. They were already rehearsing, and I talked to Glenn, and Glenn said, said, oh, we've already got two guitars. And I said, oh, you could use a third one. Come on. And so he said, yeah, why not? So I joined them, and I'd sing some of the songs, lead, and we do lots of harmonies, and Glenn's a fabulous singer. Yeah. And Harvey was a, a very great guitar player, So this, and, and Nigel on drums, and another guy called, um, goodness, and escapes me. He was over Adelaide Way now. He didn't have much of a background in the yeah. band, I don't think. Uh, so, and we played a couple of gigs at the Bridge Hotel in Roselle. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. It's a fairly well-known venue. Yeah, well. We played a couple of gigs there, and I don't know, everybody had so much sort of other distractions of work and so forth. Uh, Glenn and Harvey were working for Fender, yes. Australia. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. I know well, yes. Well, I know the people who used to own Fender, the family yeah. as well. Um, they're, they're family friends um, uh, in Sydney here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the Lachlan's, you know. No, I, I don't know them, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, I, yeah, that's right. They, they um, anyhow, there was, there was sort of a, 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 a small world connection. So it, all fell, so it all fell apart there. That didn't go too long. Yeah, it, it, no, it didn't. I think there was just not, and we weren't doing original music. It was just all Covers. cover tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and of course, you've got a fa- have you got a family by this stage? Yeah, and I said I, I would, um, you know, to get to Saturday night and I'd, I'd have to go out to a gig having worked all week as well, trying to, you know, make enough money for my two daughters that I had by then, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And I also took a job that got us out of the red um, family-wise by taking a job and I worked in French Polynesia on a project there with the whole family, right. with a young family. That was a great experience. But yeah. uh, not a lot of music except um, listening to the complex rhythms of the, uh, of the uh, of the some of the Polynesian stuff. It was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And so then it's back to Australia and back to yeah, normal lot, not, walking li- working life, yeah? Yeah, not a lot. A fair, fair amount of sort of reunion with all my museums in Newcastle at various gigs and venues and whatever. And then well, probably not until about 12 years ago, Yeah, I formed a band with a, a good friend of mine and that became The Lost. Funkies, yes. A, a friend here in Sydney, although 
those recordings under the name Lost Funkies don't involve the rest of the band, as I've probably no, explained. Yep. No, but yep. we, we, we have put out Lost Funkies, and yep. and I must say to the audience that uh, Roger is recording again, and he's, uh, he's trying to withhold from me, but I know he's got recordings <laughs> that we could actually release, and he's going uh, I'm not holding them back. They're all in my head. So oh, oh are they? Head. Well, he's going overseas yeah. for a while, and then he's coming back, and he's going to record them so we can put them out. Right. Um, I'm going to do some uh, little fake record, meaning put the tracks, put some ideas together on, yep. on my computer while I'm doing stuff or whatever. Yep. You've given me some inspiration to yeah. get on with it. You know? well, I, get my know, mojo work. Well, I, I think, and you know, we're we're all moving on in life, you and me, and in our age bracket, and we've got to we've got we've got to try and get uh, the creative um, elements of the music that we've got within e- ourselves out, and and offer it to you know to the public, and and I think because of the digital age, and you know, there's all the downside of the digital age, and but there's the upside. And the upside, oh, the is, upside. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and it, it gets to so many more people, and it is truly international. It's no longer about Australia. You know, who cares just about yeah, here? Right. It's about international, and well, uh, I think the I think the upside for me at least is that it is so easy to create quality recordings. Yeah, you know, just with a, with your laptop and a couple of. Um, well, you've yeah. proven that with your last release. You, you definitely proved that with the last release, and it's yeah. it's all well, achievable. And, and I, where I struggle is, well, I'll tell you where I, I struggle is I like to collaborate because yeah. I think yeah. if I, I could I could pick anybody, any of the bands we just, you know, whether it's Lennon and McCartney or Becker and Fagan, yeah, they're all. It all better as a team. Well, you're not the only one. Yeah. A lot of um, our yeah. artists that I interview are having that situ- that issue yeah. that they they want to write. They've got all the ideas, but they like to collaborate. They find it difficult to do on their own, and it probably gets back to to what's been going on post pandemic and obviously during the pandemic. That insular uh, society that's developed where people are on their own and they're going mad because they do want to burst out and be with other people and it yeah i'm getting yeah. the same vibe with writing is that our artists want to be out collaborating and we are trying to put some of our artists together um yeah and, yeah. and get some well, more music out yeah beyond the comrade and um uh or getting out of the loneliness thing it's just that um as a, as a kind of an editor of ideas and uh, additional additions to the ideas, yeah, so much better if um, uh, yeah, you know I don't uh, I, all my current recordings use fabulous drum um, software and yeah. um, samples and whatever yeah. that that uh, I'm not interested in trying to create some unique drum bits, but yeah. um, the drummer that I play with in the band, the current band, yeah, when we did play, yeah. Um, He's just a great guy and a great drummer. And I've, I've said to him so many times, we've got to set up the electronic kit and start triggering some some, some good rhythm patterns and that in my studio. Because, but, you know, he, even now, he's, he couldn't make our rehearsal a week ago because he's away at work overseas. You know, <laughs> everybody's got busy lives. 
there it's is the so... only thing you can do on your own. Yeah, well, there... I can just walk into the studio on my own and say, right, this will do. Well, there is. There's so much technology um, out there, and it's developing at a rate of knots, and it's trying to keep up. And I record with people around the world, and then I've had to, you know, I've had to have someone come in and set up Cubase for me with then. Um, uh, easy drummer which is then uh, you know on top of that and it's you know and then you have a hundred drum kits but then you use your electronic kit to trigger all of that and you know the sounds are fantastic and you get multi-tricks yeah. out of it but it's wow what a setup to try and do it myself i was going crazy i just couldn't do it so i actually had to pay someone to come in and set that all up now um it's so much easier. I just, if someone sends me a guide track, I just go bang and I sit down and I record it and I send them a multi track of the drums. And so you do all the, you're doing lots of drum parts, are you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, uh, I'm playing with like three different people at the moment. So, but, right. but the, the, you know, the crux of that story is it took us, it took us, I think, two years to get to that situation where I had this all set up. It was driving us nuts. It was just, too hard but now that i've got it set up i just send them the multi-track and then they they put that in and and away they go and then they can it's just like being in the studio and you got every particular drum and you can put whatever effects you want through it and do what you want to do um but you know it is a mind-bending exercise to get set up because it's all this digital you know and it by the time you've gotten to one part and you've sorted it it's moved on to the next it's upgraded and, and but it does make it it definitely a um I suppose accessible that you can actually go and record yourself and deliver top quality sound, you know, from your own bedroom. And it, and it's, yeah. it's and I'm talking to a lot of, a lot of young bands now too, Roger, about that where you can yeah. do it, and you know, and they're doing it. But you know, but all right, well, we'll we'll look forward to more songs from you when you get back. For, yeah, no, for, for the I'm project not, I'm, called Las I'm inspired Funkers. by your enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think if they're there, if you've got those in your mind and you've got tunes, you know, you, it's an obligation to get them out. I mean, you don't do it just for yourself. That's too egotistical. I mean, it's about sending it out there to an audience and listening to it, you know. Yeah. And and it's definitely the way you, I think you need to approach it and. So we'll, but I wouldn't be saying that if I didn't think that music was up to scratch. But when we got your last recording, wow, we're back to it. You know, it was just fantastic. Oh. So, um, thank you. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll wait to hear from you again in possibly what three to six months with some new recordings. That's right. Give me three, and I'll be I'll have something. Okay. I'll force myself. I'll just say, you know, I put too much strain on the fact that, uh, for instance, a good example would be. If you want to, if I want to start with an idea, I say, "Well, here's a nice rhythm. I'll do this rhythm, yeah. and it'll just be the same four-bar loop or something with the rhythm." Yeah. And I think, "Oh, well, I better make a better vary that rhythm so that I can do something else." And I hesitate to just leave it plain because I think the best thing to do is is I could t- with with recording this way, yeah, I could I could just leave a basic click track almost. Do, do it all, come back and have fiddle with the drums later. But um, I get caught up in the technical side of one part of it and then there's no inspiration there. You know, you've got to keep the inspiration going. And, like, if I do stuff while I'm away overseas, 
there's no way that that's the final tracks anyhow. It's just, it's just a couple of ideas, you know, and maybe the vocal and the guitar is on one track anyhow. But you take those ideas and uh, and, and you can just uh, re-record them, you know. Oh, abso- I think, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's... And, and I could... I could. I would think I don't have a great setup in my studio as a vocal recording. I thought, well, why not just do everything with a scratch vocal, and then right at the end get it really good, and then just go to a studio and get someone who knows how to record vocals to record the vocals. You know, that's what I think. You know, that's my latest. Idea. <laughs> yeah, you look. You can do that. Although I've got a lot of artists that have just got the right mic and. Um and it's it's no problem at all, and they they record it. Yeah, it's yeah. all it's all achievable. But look, we look forward to more music from Roger Pike, and it's been a pleasure talking to you, Roger. Have a great time overseas, and we will catch up, no doubt, once you come back. Okay. Yeah. Hey, thanks for the, all your enthusiasm and support. It's yeah. my pleasure. It's we we wouldn't do it if we didn't like the music. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, you're a good man. You're okay. a good man. Thank thanks, you. Roger. Talk soon. Bye. See ya. And there it is, another Laneway Talks. G'day folks, Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers, with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> it's a stupid loaded question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers, with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their of... Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.